Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Don't point at anybody, but how many of you have been there before? (laughs) Me too, me too. And I just want to point out that the message of uh, our time together today, our message title is Plans, Pivots, and Providence. And we came up with that title before we had to pivot off of our baptisms and all that we had planned for this week. And so it's good to know that God goes before us. Amen? Amen. In 1996, the TV station VH1 that carried mostly and played mostly music videos came up with a new show that they entitled Storytellers. And on Storytellers, they would create an intimate space and they would have an artist or a band come and the artist or the band that would come, they'd share about the song that they were going to sing. And so they gave the the backstory, they gave the background, they sort of told people what was going on in their hearts and their minds before they played it. I I remember watching the um, Storytellers episode of one of my favorite bands, Counting Crow. And I thought, oh, good, I'm finally going to figure out what round here is actually all about. Like, and um, you sort of did, but you sort of didn't as you watched the show. But I was reminded of that show because the psalm that we're going to read today, the song that we're going to read has a backstory to it. It's a backstory that you need to get in order to get the thrust of the song. It reminds me a little bit of U2's song. Sunday, Bloody Sunday, where you can listen to that song and just sort of hum along in your car, and and it's a great song, and you know, Bono's voice is just iconic as ever on that song, but when you realize that the song was written about a 1972 massacre by British troops of uh, some Irish folks who were protesting in the streets, and, and Bono wrote the song after that, you start to realize, my goodness, there's a lot going on in this song. There's a lot of backstory. There's a a lot of undertone when he begins and he sings, I can't believe the news today. I can't close my eyes and make it go away. How long, how long must we sing this song? How long, how long? That's very Psalm-esque, isn't it? How long, oh Lord, how long? We can be as one tonight Broken bottles under children's feet, bodies strewn across a dead-end street, but I won't heed the battle call. Puts my back up, puts my back up against the wall, right? (laughs) Sunday, bloody Sunday. It's a great song, but when you realize what's behind the lyrics, it's a little bit haunting. It's weighty. There's, There's more texture and more substance to it when you realize why the song was written. And I would argue that Psalm 132 that we're going to be studying this morning carries that exact same kind of weight, that when you realize the story behind the song, the song means so much more. See, this psalm is filled with subtleties and nuance and hints and winks and nods that don't show up in the actual text but lurk just beneath in the story. And I would argue if we don't understand the story that precedes Psalm 132 and that Psalm 132 is written about, then we'll never really grasp the meaning of the song. In fact, we could miss it entirely. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go a little storytellers on Psalm 132, okay? 
And here's the backstory that Psalm 132 is written about. See, from the beginning of his interaction with Israel, God was known as a God who longed to dwell with his people. And because he knew that his manifest presence, his unencumbered, unhindered presence with his people would kill them, he commanded them to build an ark that would essentially host his presence. In the ark, the people of God put the Ten Commandments, they put Aaron's staff that had begun to bud, and they put a jar of manna to remember their wilderness wanderings. And and this ark lived quite literally at the center of the Israelite people's worship. It was in the Holy of Holies. And as they wandered around in the wilderness, essentially the ark would, would guide them and would host the presence of God in their midst. Well, worship of God began to wane, and when Saul took over as king, he was so audacious as to put the ark of God in front of the army in order to, in hopes to gain victory, and they went into a battle against the Philistine army with the ark right out front. They got beat up, and the ark got stolen, and the Israelites stole the ark of the covenant from the people of God. Now, they only held on to it for about seven months because the ark started to beat up on their idols and people got plagues. And if you haven't read about that one, I'd encourage you to read about it. First Samuel chapter seven, you can read about that. And so after seven months, they're like, we need to get rid of this thing. And so they did. They took it back to Israel and they put it in a town called Kiriath-Jerim. And it actually ended up in Abinadab's garage, about 28 miles from Jerusalem for, catch this, 20 years, 20 years. And so when David became king over all of Israel, he's going, hey, it seems like something's missing here. Where's the ark? And they're like, it's in Abinadab's garage. And they're like, we should get it and bring it back. And they're like, good idea. There's a few mishaps along the way. You might want to read about those, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Okay. But eventually they get it back into Jerusalem and David is so excited. I mean, like he starts to shed his clothing. He starts to dance. He gets a little undignified, so much so that his wife Michael's like, uh-uh, the king's not supposed to do that. You better put your clothes back on if you're going to dance like that. David, that kind of dancing, that kind of undignified. But he's like fist pumping. He is all about it. And then, and then David starts to notice, my goodness, I've got this huge house, this big palace, and God, you're, you're like backpacking. You're covered in a tent. This doesn't seem right. And so David starts to think, maybe I should build God a house. He's probably upset about this sleeping situation. And so he goes and he talks to the prophet Nathan, his pastor, and it says this, 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, and when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king, speaking of David, said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He's going, this, this isn't right. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in your heart for the Lord is with you. Now, I love that David goes to his pastor and says, hey, Nathan, I've got this idea. What do you think? And Nathan, this prophet of God, goes, you're on track, man. Like, do that thing that you have in mind. Build God his house. You're right. You're sleeping in luxury. He's backpacking. He's God. You're not. Build him a house. 
Let's resolve this issue. And that's exactly what one, Psalm 132, at least the first 10 verses, are all about. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open there with me. Psalm 132, remember, it's a, a psalm of ascent. It's a, a song that the people of Israel would sing as they were going on pilgrimage, sojourning to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. So it's a song that they knew well. And imagine them singing this as they would walk the dusty streets of Judea on their way up to Jerusalem. Starting in verse 1, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. So they're remembering this great king and all the hardship he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He's going, I'm not sleeping until I build you that house, God. Verse 6. Behold, we heard of it, speaking of the ark, in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, the resting place that I'm going to build for you, God. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face from the face of your anointed one. Now, I love that this psalm drives home for us the character of David. I mean, he is a man who persevered through really difficult hardships. He says, through hardships, he endured. And they're looking back on this great king and they're, they're celebrating him. I mean, David was zealous for the Lord. He's passionate for God. He's, he's zealous for God's holiness, for God's righteousness. And he's going, God, it's not right that you're in a tent and I'm in this house. And he wants to right this wrong that he sees. Yeah, he's, he's zealous. He's passionate. And, and finally, we see that David says, I'm not going to sleep. I, I, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to work hard, God. And you have my word that I'm not going to rest until you've got your house. And David's got a plan, doesn't he? I mean, he is going, Lord, I've got the blueprints drawn. You're going to be taken care of thanks to me. I love that David just doesn't assume something would happen by chance, but he goes, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. He's passionate. He perseveres and he's got a plan. And, and if you don't know the rest of the story, if you were just reading Psalm 132 or you were just listening to that song, you would start to think that certainly David did what he said he was going to do. I mean, you would maybe even assume that's why we're singing the song, because David did it. The only problem with that is David didn't do it. That's not what the song is about. In fact, as he was planning on doing it, God stopped him. Listen, right after Nathan said yes to David building it, he went to sleep and listened to the way God spoke to him. It says, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent 
for my dwelling. Uh, translation, I'm just fine with backpacking, God said. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, I didn't speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I love this. David essentially, or Nathan essentially is told by God, was I complaining? Did I tell anybody to do this? Did you hear my voice in this? Was this something that I asked for? Ah, so here's my question. Here's my question. Why sing a song about how badly David wanted to build the temple, knowing but not saying that David didn't build the temple? Read through the whole psalm. It never says, oh, and by the way, David never got to do this. So why? Why all the winks and nods and subtleties and nuance? Why not just come right out and say, he wanted to do all these really good things for God, but, but God said no. See, see, I think this song is actually a song about a passionate leader who doesn't get to execute on a plan that he had. It's about someone who had all the right intentions, the right motives, and the right heart, and yet God said no to his really, really good plan. His plan to do something for God, even. And God says, no, no. So what if, just like David, what if we, what if you... And I have to let go of our plans to fully embrace God's promise. What if we can't hold on to our plan and God's promise at the same time? What if, what if it's like, um, you've probably heard this illustration before, but what if it's like the way that they trap monkeys in southern India? Have you heard this? Here's what they do. They, they hollow out a coconut and then they drill a little hole in the top and they put rice down into the coconut. They affix the coconut to some anchor, and when a monkey comes and tries to stick his hand into the coconut, he does so, he's able to get it in, but then when he makes a fist to grab onto the rice, he can't get it out. So he's stuck. But he's not stuck by anything physical. He's stuck by his own mind. He's stuck by his own idea. He's stuck by his own convictions unable to see that the thing that's usually served him really, really well is the very thing that's keeping him bound. What if we hold on to our plans in the same way? The things that normally serve us really well are the very things that often keep us bound. The the things that keep us chained, the things that keep us unable to progress, unable to move forward, unable to really, really follow after the heart of God. What if to fully embrace God's promise, we have to release our plan? To fully embrace God's promise, you have to release your plan. See, here's the truth of the matter, friends. You only have a certain amount of energy in life. And you can either use it fighting against God or partnering with him, but very rarely can you ever do both at the same time. This has been, the last 18 months has been a time period defined by a word that's been unearthed. That word is pivot. Pivot. Change. 
that you're going one direction and now you've got to, on a dime, turn and go another direction. I mean, how many of you, I just need to say it so we can get it out there. How many of you immediately think of the Friends episode where Ross is trying to get a couch up the stairs and he's yelling, pivot, 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 turn it, right? Like, like, and how many of you have felt like that's been our world over the last 18 months? You're going one direction and you're called to, to, to pivot, to change. Gosh, we had that plan and we're not going to get to execute on that plan. Do you know it's actually a biblical idea, this idea of pivoting? Listen to the way that the author of Proverbs put it. He said, the heart of a man plans his way. <laughs> like, listen, we come up with great ideas, don't we? <laughs> Come on, don't we? Say this word with me, church. But we've got our plans, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Lord is the one that gets to direct and redirect and redirect and, my goodness, redirect again? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but over the last few months, I've been like, God, could I have just one plan? Just one. I'm just, I'm not asking for the moon, Lord. I'm asking for one thing to go the way that we design it to go. Doesn't have to be a big thing, could be a small thing. Just one thing. You guys don't care too much about <laughs> my pain. It's all right. I'm talking to my counselor about it. It's all good. It's all but the Lord, but the Lord establishes his steps. And, and see what the, song, what the writer of Proverbs is not saying. He's not saying it's bad to plan. He's just saying it's bad to plan when, hold on to your plan when God redirects. It's bad to cling so tightly to your plan that you can't imagine any other way of doing it. See, I think what he's pointing out and what David shows us is that faith is most fully displayed when we trust God when he says no. Like a lot of people, it's easy to trust God when he says yes. Something we want, he says yes, and we're like, oh, we trust you. You're amazing, God. Thank you. But when he says no, that's when it gets really, really difficult to trust. And we know, we know that at times, sometimes God's no leads to a yes that's even better. Uh, we sing songs about this type of thing, don't we? We want to remind ourselves of that truth, don't we? Don't we? All you country music fans, I just want to hear you. Come on, come on, come on, sing it with me. I thank God, right? For unanswered prayer. Come on, sing it if you know it. When you're talking to the man upstairs, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Thank you, Garth. Thank you, Garth. Thank you, Emmanuel Faith. Yeah. You know what's funny? Is, and this is just, just between you and I. Um, I. I actually have to sing because if YouTube catches us playing Garth, they will immediately take our video down. So if I sing, here's the funny part. If I sing, the algorithm can't actually hear Garth singing. <laughs> and they're like, it's so far off. It's definitely not Garth. 
and there's no violation going on here. So thank you. You guys helped. You guys helped out so much. Yeah. Um, which brings the next pivot even more challenging after that. Um, there, there's some, there are some pivots God brings where we go, praise God, in hindsight, right? Thank you, Lord. That was so much better than what I'd expected. That was so much. And then there's some that just continue to sting. There, there's some pivots that God brings where we go, God, I can't imagine how saying yes to that request wouldn't have brought more people to you. I, I can't imagine how saying yes to that wouldn't have been for my good. God, I, I can't imagine how saying yes wouldn't have moved this Jesus story forward and wouldn't have been better for the gospel and everybody else. God, I just can't understand how a no is actually better. I mean, I had a number of conversations this week that just drove this point home for me and, and reiterated how important this psalm is. I was talking with um, a good friend of mine. She's been in vocational ministry for 10 years, 10 years plus, and the season is just coming to an end. And I, we were sitting across the table from each other at coffee, and she said to me, Ryan, I just was lying in bed the other night, and I sensed God saying to me, I'm tr you're trying to hold on to something I'm calling you to let go of. Um, the next day, I was sitting in my office across from a young woman in our church who struggles with chronic illness and chronic pain. And she said to me, Ryan, I'm watching everybody else in my life doing what they want to do, going and being who they feel like God's called them to be. And I've had to let go of so many dreams. I, just, I don't know what to do with it. On Tuesday evening, I, I had the chance to talk with Mary Waring right before um, the Wednesday where John passed away. And she said to me, um, she said, Ryan, I just, I want God's will, even if it's not what I really want. I want his will above all. And I thought, man, yeah, it's easy to thank God for unanswered prayers when on the other end of it, there's something better. And we're like, yeah, that's awesome. But what about when it's just no? And, and we have to trust even when we can't see. See, what if faith is most fully displayed when we trust God even as he says no? And my guess is you've had to do this at some point in your life as well. When you got a no from that person that you said I do to and you envisioned and planned a life together. Or you got a no when a child walked away from the Lord she didn't decide not to follow Jesus. Or, or maybe it's the depression, anxiety that just, has just sat there on your heart and on your life. And you've gotten no after no. And you've asked God, God, would you just lift this, please? Now, just so we're clear, not all no's come from God, but all of them are allowed by God. And I think what Psalm 132 wants to do is it wants to point us to something bigger than our plan that we can cling to, and that bigger thing is God's promise. And so look at the way that 
God says this to David, and what we're going to read is really a, um, a Cliff Notes version of what we call the Davidic Covenant that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Most Old Testament scholars would say the Davidic Covenant is one of the mountaintops of the Old Testament. It's one of the most important passages because it points us to Jesus and the fact that Jesus is going to come through David's line. Here's what it said. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's pointing us directly to the Messiah. And if you go and you read through 2 Samuel chapter 7, what you see is that David says to God, hey God, good news for you, I'm going to build you a house. And God says back to David, hey David, good news for all of humanity, I'm going to send a Messiah through you who's going to redeem the entire world by his sacrifice and by his blood. And by the way, we know now that his name is Jesus. Thank you. Just making sure you're dialed in, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, in this instance, God said no to one thing so that he could say yes to something better. But in doing so, David has to make this pivot. He, he's got to make this change in direction. And I think this promise actually shows us a number of the pivots that David had to make. I'm just going to point out three of them for us this morning. And I want you to, as we go through these, just ask, God, are you asking me to make any of these pivots in my life today? Here's the first one. You'll notice that David wanted to build a physical structure for God. He wanted something that people could come up to and they could, they could touch and they could enter into and that there was some sort of atmosphere that they could feel as they got close to it. And certainly that served the people of God really, really well because David didn't build it, but who did? Solomon built it. His son, Solomon, built that temple. But the pivot God is asking David to make is one from physical to spiritual. He's saying, David, you've got in mind the physical structures, but what I want to do through you is bring spiritual renewal. David, what I want to do through you is something way bigger than a temple. David, what I want to do through you is to awaken dead things to life by the Jesus who's going to come through your line. Now, this transition from physical to spiritual would be something that the people of God have always struggled with. I mean, when Jesus came, the people of God, the Israelites, they wanted a conquering king. I mean, they wanted somebody that would go and sit on the throne. They wanted somebody that would wipe out all of their enemies. And when they were thinking enemies, who were they thinking? Rome. We're under their thumb. And what does Jesus come and do? He goes, oh, I'm going to conquer your enemies. Sure enough, but they're, they're way bigger enemies than Rome. I'm going to conquer the enemies of sin and death and evil. In fact, I'm going to make a mockery of them by triumphing over them on the cross. Thank you very much. But your physical torment is still going to continue for a little while. You know, when Jesus came and he taught things like, oh, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. They were like, wait, what? 
It doesn't, doesn't look like it. And when Jesus said things like, oh, the kingdom of God is within you, they, they were going, wait, what? We, we want it out there. <laughs> and I think we still do. I think we still do. I mean, there's a reason that when Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to his followers, don't store up treasure on earth where, rot, where, where um, moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Like, don't just be so consumed with the physical that you miss the spiritual. And I think, I think, if I could just give a word to our church body. I mean, I love this building. I really do. I mean, every time I come in it, I'm like, God, thank you. What a gift. What, what an unbelievable place to come and to lift your name high. God, thanks for the comfy chairs and for the way that it seems like your spirit meets with us here uniquely. God, thank you. But please hear me on this. In fact, would you just look up from your notes for just a moment. What we do here on Sundays or any other day of the week is not about the building. It's not about the physical structures. It's about what God will do in the hearts and lives of people for the glory of Jesus through his gospel and by the power of his spirit. Friends, one day, as great as this space is, and I think it's great, as great as this space is, it will one day not be here. You get that? Like one day it'll be wiped out. And the things that Jesus has done in hearts and lives, drawing people to himself, those are the things that will remain. This is a great canvas to paint on, but the story is about Jesus and the substance is about Jesus. It's not about the spaces we gather. It's about the name we gather around. Let's never make it about just a physical space. Let's make it about spiritual renewal that Jesus wants to bring. It's easier to build a building than it is to build a legacy of faith. And let's make sure in our families and in our church at large that we are pushing toward, God, we want you to use our lives to build something of substance, not just that we can touch, but something that will last forever, which is exactly where God went next with David. He said, if your sons keep my covenant, my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever will sit on your throne. What's his point? He, he's moving David. He's pivoting David from being focused on the temporal to being focused on the eternal. And what's really interesting is that there were times in Israelites' history, in the Israelites' history, when they would sing Psalm 132 and the temple was completely destroyed. I mean, think about that. They turn to this point in their songbook and they're like, I will. David's like, I will. And God's like, no, I will. And they're like, yeah, awesome. And it's a pile of rubble. It's a pile of rubble. You know, Solomon built the temple. It was beautiful. But in 587 BC, the Assyrians marched into town and they completely wiped out that temple that David wanted to build but didn't get to build. But the son Solomon built, but it got absolutely destroyed. And so will everything temporal. Like some of the things that you fought for most and love most will one day end up either at a garage sale or a landfill. I mean, think about that. 
I, I think the question, the pivot that God is inviting us to make is, man, are we building our lives off of physical and temporal things or are we leveraging our time, our talent, our treasure, our energy, our plans, our mind for things that will last forever? I just wanna beg you today, if you are building your life around either just the physical or just the temporal, I wanna beg you to pivot, to pivot to Jesus to pivot even if things are, are rocky right now and rough. I love the way that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he said this, in the midst of suffering, he said, for our light and momentary troubles. <laughs> he's going, I mean, talk about downplaying it a little bit, but he's going, I'm just seeing it in light of eternity. Are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is what? Say it with me, church. Temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes. Emmanuel Faith, it's, it is so easy for me. My guess is it might be really easy for you to start fixing your eyes on just all that we can see. That's natural. Which is why what we do every single Sunday in coming to worship is Supernatural. It's designed to cause us to lift our eyes, to say, God, we believe that there's a bigger story than, that you're telling, bigger than what we can see all around us, bigger than what we can touch, bigger than what we can build with our own hands. God, there's a bigger story that you are telling. And the call every time we come to worship together is fix your eyes on him. Give your life to that story. The, 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 the invitation of worship is pivot. Pivot, go a different direction in light of who Jesus is. And I love that we're a church that said, man, we're gonna, we're gonna push into things that are of eternal value, of spiritual value. I, I got to see so many of you over at our Love Esco event yesterday where we had just so many people from our community come and, um, and many of you also dropped backpacks off and school supplies off before. And it was just a beautiful picture of what it looks like when a church says, I mean, we're gonna care about the physical needs of a community, but we're also going to care about the spiritual needs. And Pastor Saban got to share the gospel and it was just great to see the way that our community responded. Now, there's one final pivot that I wanna point out. And you've gotta have the text open in front of you in order to see it. It was too long to put on slides. So I want you to go back to verses three through five. And I'm going to read those for you. And I, I just want you to sense the, what, what I emphasize because I think that there's a point in all this that's not said but certainly alluded to. Verse 3 David, uh, about David, it says, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. You, you picking up what I'm putting down? Wonderful. Jump down to verse 13, because this is where this story starts to come more into fruition. It says this, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. And then it starts to quote God. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests, 
I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. For I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on his crown will shine. Do you sense the juxtaposition between the way the psalm starts of David going, God, good news. I'm going to do something great for you. And the song ends with God saying, good news. I'm going to do something great. Not only for the glory of my name, but for the joy of my people. And I think, I think the point of this whole song is the tension of our plan versus God's will. Is the tension of what we're going to do for God versus what God's going to do for us. I think the tension is, will I live a for God life or a from God life? It's so funny because David goes from telling God what he wants to do for him to listening to what God is going to do on behalf of David for, for all of humanity. It's interesting, if you go back and you read through 2 Samuel chapter 7, what you find is that God makes this point in talking to David and he says, David, here's the deal. I took you from the pasture. Hey, remember when you were just a shepherd out there? I took you from the pasture, from following sheep that you should be prince over all my people. Hey, David, was that your plan? And you just imagine God going, I'll wait. Oh, no, that was my plan. Wonderful. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. David, who conquered all your enemies? Who took them out? Was that you? Okay. And I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And here's what God's saying to David. He's going, David, your whole life has been about what I am doing for and through you. So why are you trying to take hold of the plan yourself? Why are you trying to hold so tightly to what you want to do for me? David, it's always been about what I am doing for you. And Emmanuel Faith, I want you to hear the exact same thing this morning. It's always been about what God is doing for you. Not what you are doing for him. And when we get that, we can start to rest when we get that, we can start to trust. Even when our plans explode, we don't have to cling so tightly and get caught. We can actually say, okay, God, I trust you. I trust you. And we can anticipate future good. You know, it's true. Sometimes God says no to something so that he can say yes to something better. Sometimes. And I would say, if God said no to you and you're carrying in a no today, I just want you to hear that God's redirection is not a rejection. And I think that's a word for somebody in here today. That God's redirection, his saying no, is not a rejection of you. It's not because he's out to get you. It's not because he doesn't like you and it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because I think sometimes God says no and he redirects so that he, he opens us up to more and more knowing his affection and his attentiveness to us and his goodness to get our attention. Yeah, pan, 
plans, pivots, and providence. My guess is that you find yourself somewhere in there today. And some of you, some of you, you're here today and you carried in a really painful no from God. And it stings and you wake up thinking about it and you go to bed thinking about it. And what I want you to hear, I think God has you here for a reason. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm going to give you in just a moment a chance to respond to him. Because I think some of you are here today, you're carrying a no. But the truth of the matter is sometimes God says no to you so that you'll say yes to him. There are times when God, in his divine sovereignty, allows our life to start to fall apart so that we get to the bottom and we reach out and go, God, you're my only hope. God, you're, you're, you're all I've got to lean on. That God, that, like when I hit rock bottom, I found out you're actually the rock that's at the bottom. Like sometimes God says no to us so that we will say yes to him. Following Jesus is always a pivot, always. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna point out for you, even if God has said no to you, Maybe you felt like over and over and over and over, there is a yes that he's saying to you this morning. And here's the yes. The yes is to blessing. The yes is to satisfaction. The yes is to salvation. The yes is to joy. The yes is to victory. My question is, will you say yes to him? Whether it's for the first time, or whether it's for the first time in a long time, or whether it's just for the first time today, will you say yes to him? Let's pray. So if you're here today and you're, maybe for the very first time, you're saying back to Jesus, yeah, I've, I've encountered a lot of no's, but today I wanna say yes to you. Would you just raise your hand so I know who I'm praying for? If you're saying, yeah, I see you right there. I see you, I see you, I see you. Yep. Just raise your hand. Praise God. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. So Lord, for the people who for the very first time are saying yes to you, if that's you, you might just pray in your heart something like this. God, I, I've been trying to do it on my own. I've been living this I will kind of life. And today I want to pivot. I want to turn and I want to say back to you, I trust you. I'm giving you my heart. I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you my plans. I'm, I'm turning, I'm repenting. I'm trusting in you for forgiveness. And Jesus, I'm asking, would you come dwell in me through your Holy Spirit? Help me become one of your disciples, learning to live in your way with your heart for your glory. Lord, for the people who, who've raised hands and they're just going, I wanna say yes to you and releasing my plans. I'm choosing your promise over my plan. God, I pray that you would meet them in the pain of release. God, that they would sense your spirit, inviting them and moving them forward, your goodness and your mercy. God, I pray that we would be able to cling to those words that we've sung already this morning. All of your promises are yes and amen. 
Sometimes it seems like none of our plans are yes and amen. So we're grateful, Lord. Your promises, every single one, are yes and amen in Jesus. May we be people who release our plan so that we can more fully step in to your promise, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.